Session seven of Capital and Interest by Frederick Bastiat, read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Session seven. What is money? What is credit? And what is interest? Ignorance of the true part which cash plays in human transactions is the source of the most fatal errors. I intend devoting an entire pamphlet to this subject entitled Cursed Money, subsequently referred to as What is Money and Hateful Money. From what we may infer from the writings of Monsieur Proudhon, that which has led him to think that gratuitous credit was a logical and definite consequence of social progress, is the observation of the phenomenon which shows a decreasing interest almost in direct proportion to the rate of civilization. In barbarous times, it is, in fact, cent, percent, and more. Then it descends to eighty, sixty, fifty, forty, twenty, ten, eight, five, four, and three percent. In Holland, it has even been shown as low as two percent. Hence, Proudhon concludes that, quote, in proportion as society comes to perfection, it will descend to zero by the time civilization is complete. In other words, that which characterizes social perfection is the gratuitousness of credit. When, therefore, we shall have abolished interest, we shall have reached the last step of progress. End quote. This is mere sophistry and as such false arguing may contribute to render popular the unjust, dangerous, and destructive dogma that credit should be gratuitous by representing it as a coincident with social profession, with the reader's permission I will examine in a few words this new view of the question. What is interest? It is the service rendered, after a free bargain, by the borrower to the lender, in remuneration for the service he has received by the loan. By what law is the rate of these remunerative services established? By the general law which regulates the equivalent of all services, that is, by the law of supply and demand. The more easily a thing is procured, the smaller is the service rendered by yielding it or lending it. The man who gives me a glass of water in the Pyrenees does not render me so great a service as he who allows me one in the desert of Sahara. If there are many plains, sacks of corn, or houses in a country, the use of them is obtained, other things being equal, on more favorable conditions than if they were few, for the simple reason that the lender renders in this case a smaller relative service. It is not surprising, therefore, that the more abundant capitals are, the lower is the interest. Is this saying that it will ever reach zero? No, because, I repeat it, the principle of a remuneration is in the loan. To say that interest will be annihilated is to say that there will never be any motive for saving, for denying ourselves, in order to form new capitals, nor even to preserve the old ones. In this case, the waste would immediately bring a void, and interest would directly reappear. In that, the nature of the services of which we are speaking does not differ from any other. Thanks to industrial progress, a pair of stockings, which used to be worth six francs, has successively been worth only four, three, and two. 
No one can say to what point this value will descend, but we can affirm that it will never reach zero unless the stockings finish by producing themselves spontaneously. Why? Because the principle of remuneration is in labor, because he who works for another renders a service and ought to receive a service. If no one paid for stockings, they would cease to be made, and with the scarcity, the price would not fail to reappear. The sophism which I am now combating has its own root in the infinite divisibility which belongs to value as it does to matter. It appears at first paradoxical, but it is well known to all mathematicians that through all eternity fractions may be taken from a weight without the weight ever being annihilated. It is sufficient that each successive fraction be less than the preceding one in a determined and regular proportion. There are countries where people apply themselves to increasing the size of horses or diminishing in sheep the size of the head. It is impossible to say precisely to what point they will arrive in this. No one can say that he has seen the largest horse or the smallest sheep's head that will ever appear in the world. But he may safely say that the size of horses will never attain to infinity, nor the heads of sheep to nothing. In the same way, no one can say to what point the price of stockings, nor the interest of capitals, will come down. But we may safely affirm, when we know the nature of things, that neither the one nor the other will ever arrive at zero. For labor and capital can no more live without recompense than a sheep without a head. The arguments of Monsieur Proudhon reduce themselves, then, to this. Since the most skillful agriculturalists are those who have reduced the heads of sheep to the smallest size, we shall have arrived at the highest agricultural perfection when sheep have no longer any heads. Therefore, in order to realize the perfection, let us behead them. I have now done with this wearisome discussion. Why is it that the breadth of false doctrine has made it needful to examine into the intimate nature of interest? I must not leave off without remarking upon the beautiful moral which may be drawn from this law. The depression of interest is proportioned to the abundance of capitals. This law being granted, if there is a class of men to whom it is more important than to any other that capitals be formed, accumulate, multiply, abound, and superabound, it is certainly the class which borrows them, directly or indirectly, it is those men who operate upon materials, who gain assistance by instruments, who live upon provisions produced and economized by other men. Imagine in a vast fertile country a population of a thousand inhabitants destitute of all capital thus defined. It will assuredly perish by the pangs of hunger. Let us suppose a case hardly less cruel. Let us suppose that ten of these thousand savages are provided with instruments and provisions sufficient to work and to live themselves until harvest time, as well as to remunerate the services of ninety laborers. The inevitable result will be the death of nine hundred human beings. It is clear, then, that since nine hundred and ninety men, urged by want, will crowd upon the supports which would only maintain a hundred, the ten capitalists will be masters of the market. They will obtain labor on the hardest conditions, for they will put it up to auction or the highest bidder. And observe this. 
if these capitalists entertained such pious sentiments as would induce them to impose personal privations on themselves in order to diminish the sufferings of some of their brethren this generosity which attaches to morality will be as noble in its principle as useful in its effects but if duped by that false philosophy which persons wish so inconsiderately to mingle with economic laws they take to remunerating labor largely far from doing good they will do harm they will give double wages it may be but then forty-five men will be better provided for whilst forty-five others would come to augment the number of those who are sinking into the grave upon this supposition it is not the lowering of wages which is the mischief it is the scarcity of capital low wages are not the cause but the effect of the evil i may add that they are to a certain extent the remedy it acts in this way it distributes the burden of suffering as much as it can and it saves as many lives as a limited quantity of sustenance permits suppose now that instead of ten capitalists there should be a hundred two hundred five hundred is it not evident that the condition of the whole population and above all that of the proletaires the common people will be more and more improved is it not evident that apart from every consideration of generosity they would obtain more work and better pay for it that they themselves will be in a better condition to form capitals without being able to fix the limits of this ever-increasing facility of realizing equality and well-being would it not be madness in them to admit such doctrines and to act in a way which would drain the source of wages and paralyze the activity and stimulus of saving let them learn this lesson then doubtless capitals are good for those who possess them who denies it but they are also useful to those who have not yet been able to form them and it is important to those who have them not that others should have them yes if the proletaires knew their true interests they would seek with the greatest care what circumstances are and what are not favorable to saving in order to favor the former and discourage the latter they would sympathize with every measure which tends to the rapid formation of capitals they would be enthusiastic promoters of peace liberty order security the union of classes and peoples economy moderation in public expenses simplicity in the machinery of government for it is under the sway of all these circumstances that saving does its work brings plenty within the reach of the masses invites those persons to become the farmers of capital who are formerly under the necessity of borrowing upon hard conditions they would repel with energy the warlike spirit which diverts from its true course so large a part of human labor the monopolizing spirit which deranges the equitable distribution of riches in the way by which liberty alone can realize it the multitude of public services which attack our purses only to check our liberty and in short those subversive hateful thoughtless doctrines which alarm capital prevent its formation oblige it to flee and finally to raise its price to the especial disadvantage of the workers who bring it into operation well and in this respect is not the revolution of february a hard lesson 
is it not evident that the insecurity it has thrown into the world of business on the one hand and on the other the advancement of the fatal theories to which i have alluded and which from the clubs have almost penetrated into the regions of the legislature have everywhere raised the rate of interest is it not evident that from that time the proletaires have found greater difficulty in procuring those materials instruments and provisions without which labor is impossible is it not that which has caused stoppages and do not stoppages in their turn lower wages thus there is a deficiency of labor to the proletaires from the same cause which loads the objects they consume with an increase of price in consequence of the rise of interest high interest low wages means in other words that the same article preserves its price but that the part of the capitalist has invaded without profiting himself that of the workman a friend of mine commissioned to make inquiry into parisian industry has assured me that the manufacturers have revealed to him a very striking fact which proves better than any reasoning can how much insecurity and uncertainty injure the formation of capital it was remarked that during the most distressing period the popular expenses of mere fancy had not diminished the small theatres the fighting lists the public houses and tobacco depots were as much frequented as in prosperous times in the inquiry the operatives themselves explained this phenomenon thus what is the use of pinching who knows what will happen to us who knows that interest will not be abolished who knows but that the state will become a universal and gratuitous lender and that it will wish to annihilate all the fruits which we might expect from our savings well i say that if such ideas could prevail during two single years it would be enough to turn our beautiful france into a turkey misery would become general and endemic and most assuredly the poor would be the first upon whom it would fall workmen they talk to you a great deal upon the artificial organization of labor do you know why they do so because they are ignorant of the laws of its natural organization that is of the wonderful organization which results from liberty you are told that liberty gives rise to what is called the radical antagonism of classes that it creates and makes to clash two opposite interests that of the capitalists and that of the proletaires but we ought to begin by proving that this antagonism exists by a law of nature and afterwards it would remain to be shown how far the arrangements of restraint are superior to those of liberty for between liberty and restraint i see no middle path again it would remain to be proved that restraint would always operate to your advantage and to the prejudice of the rich but no this radical antagonism this natural opposition of interests does not exist it is only an evil dream of perverted and intoxicated imaginings no a plan so defective has not proceeded from the divine mind to affirm it we must begin by denying the existence of god and see how by means of social laws and because men exchange amongst themselves their labors and their productions see what a harmonious tie attaches the classes one to the other there are the landowners what is their interest that the soil be fertile and the sun beneficent 
and what is the result that corn abounds that it falls in price and the advantage turns to the profit of those who have had no patrimony there are the manufacturers what is their constant thought to perfect their labor to increase the power of their machines to procure for themselves upon the best terms the raw material and to what does all this tend to the abundance and the low price of produce that is that all the efforts of the manufacturers and without their suspecting it result in a profit to the public consumer of which each of you is one it is the same with every profession well the capitalists are not exempt from this law they are very busy making schemes economizing and turning them to their advantage this is all very well but the more they succeed the more do they promote the abundance of capital and as a necessary consequence the reduction of interest now who is it that profits by the reduction of interest is it not the borrower first and finally the consumers of the things which capitals contribute to produce it is therefore certain that the final result of the efforts of each class is the common good of all you are told that capital tyrannizes over labor i do not deny that each one endeavors to draw the greatest possible advantage from his situation but in this sense he realizes only that which is possible now it is never more possible for capitals to tyrannize over labor than when they are scarce for then it is they who make the law it is they who regulate the rate of sale never is this tyranny more impossible to them than when they are abundant for in that case it is labor which has the command away then with the jealousies of classes ill-will unfounded hatreds unjust suspicions these depraved passions injure those who nourish them in their hearts there is no declamatory morality it is a chain of causes and effects which is capable of being rigorously mathematically demonstrated it is not the less sublime in that it satisfies the intellect as well as the feelings i shall sum up this whole dissertation with these words workmen laborers proletaires destitute and suffering classes will you improve your condition you will not succeed by strife insurrection hatred and error but there are three things which cannot perfect the entire community without extending these benefits to yourselves these things are peace liberty and security this ends capital and interest by frederick bastiat read for you by michelle fry baton rouge louisiana thank you for listening